Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at the passage that was just read a few minutes ago. Now you know this is Saturday morning, as I'm recording this for you guys tomorrow, and I hope I remembered uh, to tell you about the pieces of paper that are in your seats. One of them is your talkback guide. Anytime you have something you'd like for me to refer to or, or talk about in a message, you write that down and I'll uh, do my best to weave it in. And the other is a listening guide that you're going to need in just a few minutes. So if you didn't get one, um, if there wasn't one on your seat, just take a minute and see if you can grab one while we're kind of getting started here. I think every one of us has been through some variation of this scenario. It's your first day on a brand new job. And even though you know your job, you've done it other places, you walk in and you know that you are the new man, the new woman in there. I mean, the stares, the looks, uh, you know that every office has its own set of politics and you've got to try to figure out how to navigate. First day at a brand new school. Students, been through that, haven't you? You don't know anybody, nobody knows you, and uh, you're not sure how you're supposed to act, how you're supposed to dress, what you're supposed to do. Come to a new church never been to before. You visit, not going to fit in. New promotion, new department. Join the Y, one of the most interesting things to me as I go to the Y almost every day is to see people who come in who are brand new members and they look around and they're not sure if they're wearing the right thing or they know how to use the equipment. There are all of these scenarios where we find ourselves in situations where we are uncomfortable. And if we are going to shift our mirrors to windows, if we're going to stop focusing on ourselves as the insiders and start focusing on people who are outside of the gospel, we need to try to remember what it's like when you're the newbie. It's hard enough just to figure out how to fit in, but then what makes it even worse is when you're in a situation where not only are you the new one, but because you're not doing things the way everybody else does, all of a sudden you're the target of scorn and jokes and ridicule. You want to impress your new boss, and so you work really, really hard, and unbeknownst to you, you're doing more than people who've been there 10 years, and you start to make them look bad, and then they start picking at you, and they start... Uh, complaining about you and they start saying things behind your back and next thing you know you've made enemies without even trying you just did your job just doing what you're supposed to do you want to do a good job for the new teacher it's a hard course and you you want to get to know him or her and you're labeled a brown noser or a suck up or whatever and you're made fun of and you're teased and all of a sudden you have enemies you're just trying to go to school. You're just trying to get the project done. You're just trying to get in an exercise at the Y and you notice the smiles and the sidelong glances. How do you deal with people who oppose you when you really haven't done anything wrong at all and, 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 and they just want to give you a hard time? What do you do? How do you respond? What do you, how do you react? Well, you know what? Jesus has the answer to that question. And this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus reacted to people who opposed him. And we're going to learn from that. Because if you remember, we've taken a couple of weeks off from this theme, but one of the things we've been talking about in the book of Matthew is that Jesus has all authority 
over all of creation, which then demands all of our allegiance and obedience. And so Jesus has begun, after this Sermon on the Mount that we studied for a few weeks, to perform miracles and do things that show God's love for people. And now as we get into chapter 12, the opposition begins to ramp up to him. And they're questioning, who do you think you are? Who gave you this authority? Why are you doing these things? And today we're going to look at a couple of instances from the beginning of chapter 12. Next Sunday we'll be looking at some things from the end of chapter 12. But all of this tied into Jesus dealing with his opponents. And so what we're going to do, surprisingly enough, is we're just going to look over kind of quickly the actual events themselves. But rather than drawing out from what Jesus teaches, which we could easily do, and most of us would probably gain from that, I think we can gain more if we look not just at what Jesus said, but how he reacted to the people who were opposing him. And see the bigger picture. Not just look at what do we believe about the Sabbath? Is our Sunday the same thing as the Sabbath? Should you wear a shirt and tie on Sunday morning? Should you cut your grass on Sunday? We're going to look at much bigger pictures than that and look at how Jesus dealt with people who were opposed to him. And then learn how we can deal with people who sometimes oppose us. So, when we look at the passage that was read a few minutes ago, let's just walk through the story fairly quickly, okay? Pull some truth out, and then we'll spend most of our time talking about how Jesus dealt with his opponents. We have basically two stories here, and the nice thing about this is each of these stories have a similar cast in the sense of this. We have two main characters, or groups of characters. We have Jesus, and we have his opponents. In this case, the the Pharisees, okay? But there's also a third party, which is the, I call them the innocent victims, okay? (laughs) They're kind of the object lessons over which these discussions and this opposition takes place. In the first story, it's the disciples. In the second story, it's the man with the withered or the paralyzed hand. Luke tells us in his telling of this story that it was his right hand, and that that will be important. So as we go through the story and look at how Jesus reacted, I want you to be thinking not only about what he said, but how he responded. So the first story is They're walking through the grain fields, down a little path, on the Sabbath day. The disciples are hungry. Verse 2 says they began to pick and eat some of the heads of grain. Now, just so you understand, this was wheat. And, you know, the wheat stalk has that head of grain on the top of it. And the disciples would snap off that head of grain. And they would put it in their hands and rub it together like this. And as they did that, they would blow the chaff, the husks, off of the the, the grains of wheat, and then they would pop in their mouth and it's a little snack. Not a golden corral kind of a meal, but enough to carry them over. And there was nothing wrong with that. They weren't stealing. You remember in the Old Testament, they were taught not to harvest the edges of their fields. So that as people walked, they would be able to get a little something to carry them along the way. And the poor would have something to gather as well. So it wasn't like they were stealing grain from someone. It was right there along the edge of the path, and they were just doing that. But in the Pharisees' mind, this was breaking the law of the Sabbath. The point is not they were getting grain, is that they were doing it on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees say to him, at the end of verse 2, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Well, according to what law in the Old Testament Were they breaking that? Well, there really wasn't one. There was just a general law that says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But over the centuries, all kinds of explanations and rules had been made about what was keeping the Sabbath, what was not keeping the Sabbath. You could do this, but you couldn't do this. You could 
walk, but only 1,100 paces. You could write a short word, but not a long word. If stones collapsed in a house or a building, you could move the stones to see if there were people under there that were hurt. If there were hurt people, you could help them out. But if they were dead, you had to cover them back up and wait till the next day to do their burial. I mean, there were rules about every possible variation. And what had happened was over those centuries, those rules had become just as important as God's Word itself. Human rules had become just as important as God's rules. And that was just not what God intended. It was not what was supposed to be. And so they are opposing Jesus, and Jesus asks them a question. He says, haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? He entered the house of God. They ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. So Jesus begins by giving an example from the life of King David. Now this was before he was king. This was when he was still just the appointed or anointed king, but he hadn't actually taken the throne yet. Saul was still on the throne. But David comes to the town of Nob. He goes to Ahimelech, the priest, where this is where the tabernacle was at that point. And the sacred bread that sat at the table inside the tabernacle was there. And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, my men and I are hungry. We've been traveling. Do you have anything here that we could eat? And Ahimelech said, all I have is the holy bread. And then he thought, this is God's anointed king. And he's hungry. Would it not be right for me to give him some of this bread? Even though they knew that technically they weren't supposed to do it. It was only for the priests. And God never scolded Ahimelech. He never scolded David for doing it. David ate and was filled and then went on his way. The second example he gives is an example I can really appreciate. He says, verse 5, Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and yet they are innocent? you got to think about what priests did every Sabbath day. They got up, they, they made a sacrifice, they had to handle a dead carcass, they had to cut it open, they had to put the offering, they worked, they had to build a fire. All those things they did and yet God never punished them because that was their job. It's kind of like me. For many of you, I hope that Sunday is a wonderful day of rest and enjoying your family. But for me, in many cases, it's the hardest day of the week for me as a work day. And yet that's what God has called me to do. So God doesn't punish me or, 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 or scold me for not having the kind of rest on the Lord's day that he might would want others to have. So Jesus comes along and says, look, you men are supposed to know the Old Testament. Here are two examples where it was obvious that the rule to honor the Sabbath day was overcome by something more important. In one case, men who were hungry and needed to be fed. In another case, men whose job it was to work on the very day that people are supposed to rest. It's kind of like if we give Reese a curfew. Reese, we want you home by 11 o'clock. You need to be home by 11 o'clock on weekends. And Reese comes in one night right at 11 o'clock. How was your evening, son? It was great. I drove right by Candace Gaines. She, her car had broke down and she had a flat tire and, and, and I was going to stop and fix it. I looked at my watch and realized it was almost 11 o'clock and so I came straight home, Dad. I didn't even stop and help her. Now what would I say? I'd say, dude, I appreciate the fact that you honored my rule, but it would have been fine if you had stopped to help Candace because she obviously needed your help. So sometimes even the strictest of rules will have exceptions when somebody is in need. You see, Jesus, unlike the Pharisees, didn't see these men as being an object lesson for their rules. He saw them as men who needed to eat. Same way in the second part of the story. It says he moves on from there into the synagogue. There he saw a man who had a paralyzed hand. In order to accuse him, they asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, they're not worried about this man. They're worried about their rules. And they knew that Jesus had been healing people. And so they're thinking, hmm, all right, we're going to trap him here. 
Jesus, tell us, is it right to heal or not? Is it right to do this work on the Sabbath or not? And Jesus, again, asks a question. He says, okay, if one of you are on your way to the synagogue one morning and you see that your sheep has fallen into a pit, wouldn't you take a couple of ropes and pull that sheep out of the pit? Well, of course you would. Is this man not worth a lot more than one sheep? So why should we not do good? I like the way he answers the question. Verse 12, he says, a man is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees define it as some work, some action, some task. Jesus saw it as showing love and showing mercy. And here again, we have this poor man in the middle with the withered hand, kind of watching Jesus, kind of watching the Pharisees, kind of watching Jesus, just going, all I'd like is to get my hand back, please, if you don't mind. And so, all of this process is looking at Jesus who says to the man, stretch out your hand, stretch it out, restored as good as the other. And the Pharisees were so angry, it says in verse 14, they went out and plotted against him because they wanted to destroy him. So what do we see in these two stories? We see two incidents where one group of people see a set of rules that need to be followed. Rules that were not necessarily from the Bible, they were interpretations, human interpretations. And then we have Jesus who is looking at individuals and mercy. But what I want us to spend the next few minutes on is not so much drawing from that about what we should believe about is, the, is Sunday our Christian Sabbath? What should we do or not do? How should we dress? What should we wear? How should we act? Should we do this or that? Should we cook lunch on Sunday? Should we go out to eat on Sunday? You know what? Those are very germane questions, but not for today. I want us to look at a much broader and bigger picture. And that is, what model does Jesus give us for dealing with people who give us opposition? Whether it's opposition just because we don't fit in, or whether it's opposition because we're Christians, how do we respond? And I'm going to give you, and right there on that sheet you have, you have 11 things that we should do. And I wrote them down in my journal, brought my journal with me. So I make sure, I, nothing frustrates me more than somebody doing an outline and then not saying what's on the outline, okay? So I want to stick to it so you can fill this in, take it with you, think about it as you deal with a difficult person or situation in your life. Number one, and I think this is the most important. If we're going to follow Jesus' life lessons, we need, number one, to give ourselves to others, not just to our duties and responsibilities. If we want to follow Jesus' example, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus and want to model his way of responding, number one, give yourself to others, not just to your duties and your responsibilities. It is so easy for us to be so wrapped up in our duties and our responsibilities and the things that we have to do that we forget that we're dealing with people. And even that person who is opposed to us is a person. And it would be so easy for us to, to objectify them and just see them as a troublemaker, to see them as, as, as a thorn in our flesh, to see them as a, a, a rock in our shoe, and all of those depersonalized names that we can have for a person. But Jesus teaches us that we have to give ourselves to others. Jesus gave himself to his disciples. He gave himself to that man with the withered hand. He also gave himself to those Pharisees to take time to talk with them and try to help them see the error of their way of looking at life. So the first thing that we need to do is to remember to give ourselves. You see, the world needs to see an embodiment of who Jesus is in, in their lives as they interact with us on a day-to-day -day basis out there on the other side of the window where we work and where we live and where we act. 
Secondly, reverse the dynamic of the relationship from taking to giving. Reverse the dynamic of the relationship from taking to giving. If we look at the life of Jesus over and over and over and over again, we recognize the fact that Jesus' life was one that was made up of giving himself for others. It's interesting when I talk to a young couple, the first time they come in to see me for counseling before their wedding, I ask them, why do you want to get married? And it is amazing. I would say 80% of the time, the answers to that question tend to be how it will benefit me. Me meaning the, 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 the groom or the, the bride. I'll say to a young man, so why do you want to get married? And he'll say something like, you know what, she just makes me a better person. I just feel more whole when I'm with her. I, I just feel so satisfied with my life. I feel like I found what I've always been looking for. But it's always about how it gives to him or to her if it's the girl answering the question. And sometimes we get so caught up in a relationship about what we can receive from it that we forget or we're unable to do more to give to it than we do to receive from it. Jesus' giving of himself is our model for our own discipleship. Living out our relationships, even with people who are giving us opposition, in the sense that we want to pour into their lives rather than take from them. And to be honest with you, beloved, most of the time when we look at our relationships, whether it's family, whether it is friends, whether it's work, our number one focus is on what I can receive from this relationship. When I feel like the relationship is, no more, is no, of no more value to me, I begin to distance myself and go find a new relationship that is of more value to me. When I feel like my church is not meeting my needs, fulfilling my desires, my needs, I think, well, maybe I should go look for another church. Instead of realizing that we should be involved in relationships of giving rather than just taking. Number three, give yourself to God's expectations for the relationship. Give yourself to God's expectations for the relationship. Rather than saying, well, well, I, I would have thought that this relationship would have gone a different direction than it has. Or they're demanding things, and they expect things from me that I'm not sure I want to give. The first thing we need to do, actually I guess it would be the third thing we need to do, is to give ourselves over to what are God's expectations for this relationship. What is it that he would want me to do, to learn, to see, to model as I'm in this relationship? People always try to manipulate you to do what they want you to do. People always think they know better than you do what you ought to do. And you can listen with humility. You can listen with grace. You can listen and hear if God is trying to tell you something through that person. But also understand that you've got to keep your focus on what are God's expectations. What does God want for you to achieve in that relationship? What does he want you to do? that relationship. Number four, as best you can, enter into the experiences of life of the other person. Enter in the, into the other person's experiences of life. And what I mean by that, a lot of times we see people as just being difficult, just being ornery, just being mean-spirited. But many, many times there's a history behind that. Many times they've had experiences that they just want to try to help us, even if they're wrong. They're not doing it to be, to be bad, to be mean. Now, sometimes they are, okay? And we'll get to that in a minute. But we need as best we can to think, now, why would they feel that way? I may have told you the story before, and I'll tell it very quickly. When I was a youth pastor, there was an older gentleman, didn't have any teenagers, all of his kids were grown and gone, who wanted to see me. And so my pastor went with me to this man's house, and he just reamed me out for almost an hour about how much the youth misbehaved in the worship service. 
They were picking each other. They were passing notes and all this other stuff. This was back in the 80s when life was a little different than it is today. But there was just, just all kinds of things. And I, I told him, I said, you know what? I will, I'll work on that. I'll do what I can. I understand, you know, and, and thank you for that. And on the way out, I asked Jim, my pastor, I said, why in the world was this man so obsessed with it? He said, I'll tell you why. Because when his kids were teenagers, he did not discipline him the way he feels like he should have. And today they are far, far away from God. And the only way he knows how to express it is with anger. But really, it's a cry of his heart because he doesn't want these young people to end up where his kids are. Now, you talk about changing my relationship with a troublesome man. That changed my relationship. And by the time I left Peoria to go to Africa, he was one of my strongest supporters, one of my dearest friends. Number, what number are we on? Five. Give others a vision of Jesus in each area of your life and actions. This is kind of an expansion on number five, on number one. Jesus, if you notice the way he reacted, he didn't cow down to the Pharisees, but neither was he nasty with them. He didn't accuse them of being hellbound sinners. He didn't say, he just basically balanced strength and humility. A sense of calmness and a sense of resolve. And so in our lives, we need to do the very same thing. People oftentimes will oppose us, and for good or for bad, this is just reality, sometimes they will oppose us just to see how we respond. And when we respond in a Christ-like way, kind of like we were talking about a few weeks ago, we don't cower down and let them just beat us up, nor do we fight back. We take the initiative to be loving and caring and compassionate, to take our stand. Then they see that in us, and they recognize there's something in us that is different from most of the people they deal with. Oftentimes, there will be people who are just the bullies of the office, the bullies of the school. And they'll push you as the new employee, the new student, just to see how you will respond. And when we respond in a Christ-like way, when we show them an example, a vision of Jesus, strength and humility, compassion and courage, side by side, that will speak to them. Number six, choose carefully the hills upon which you are willing to die. This is an old phrase, and I just threw it in here because it's just true. You will be faced with all kinds of opposition. You will be faced with all kinds of challenges. And you have to decide, am I going to stand up to this or am I just going to let it go? You need to be careful about the things that you choose to risk planting your flag and dying for and the things that go, you know what, in the end, this isn't going to matter. I'm just going to let it go. Because you will wear yourself out trying to fight every single battle, every single time. I'm just telling you. You don't need to fight every battle. Number seven. Distinguish between liking and loving people. Now, i got to say, right from the start, this is not the same thing. Listen to me. This is not the same thing as looking somebody in the eye and says, well, I have to love you because Jesus commanded, but I don't have to like you. That is not what I'm talking about. Because that is just a ungodly, way to say, I don't like you, and if I was completely honest, I really don't even love you. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Here's what I mean by this, and listen, because this is very, very important. It's not really all that subtle if you'll just think about it. There are some people who just are hard to like. We don't like the way they act. We don't like the things they do. We don't like the decisions they make. We don't like the way they come across. We don't like the way they handle conflicts. But we are called to love them in the name of Jesus. 
They may not be your best friend. They may not even be your worst friend. But we still have to love them with a godly, Christ-like love. I remember for years, I'm such a people pleaser, that for years I thought I had to like everybody, and I had to make sure they liked me too. And I will never forget my first seminary church. There was a lady in my choir, and she fussed about everything, everything, every anthem I chose, every rehearsal I ran, she fussed about everything. And I went to her one time, and I said, Ms. Brockman, I know there are things I do that you don't like, and I know I make choices, decisions that, that you don't like, and I'm really sorry. She says, you know what? It's not really that. I just don't like you. Well, I went home, and I was a whooped little puppy. Nobody ever just looked me down and said, I just don't like you. And you know what? I ended up not really liking her a whole lot either. But I did love her, and I prayed for her every day. And as I grew and matured as a pastor, I began to realize that I may not always like every decision that everybody makes, but I can still love them and pray for them. And that's how we model Jesus' life. Listen, Jesus didn't like what the Pharisees did, but he loved them enough to take the time to talk with them try to help them see. Number eight. Broaden your vision to have God's perspective on all of your relationships with others. Now you say, well, that sounds like number three. Well, in a way it is, but what I'm saying in this is you need to broaden your vision, not just to this one relationship, but broaden your vision to have God's perspective on all of your relationships. In other words, what is God's plan for me as I deal with other people? You know, I can count on one hand the number of friends outside of my family that I have that I consider to be intimate friends. Matter of fact, five may be stretching it, but I'll just say five. And it's interesting that every single one of those people brings a different perspective into my life. One of them is a wonderful listener. One of them is an absolute fearless confronter when I am getting off track. One of them is a wonderful mentor and counselor and guide. But every one of them pours something into my life that the other four can't do. But now here's the other side of that coin. God has given me certain gifts and skills in relationships. And in every one of those people's lives, no matter how different they may be from each other, God has used me to help them in their lives to be more of what he would want them to be. And so beyond just this one relationship, you, we need to broaden our vision to see what is it that the Lord wants me to do with the gifts and skills he's given me as I relate to other people in general. Now the last three of these are very practical. Number nine, avoid gossiping about your relationships. Avoid gossiping about your relationships. Pastors are terrible at this. Back in the old days, every Monday morning, we had what they call pastor's conference. You go to the association law office, and all the pastors get together and have a cup of coffee and pray together, maybe do some Bible study together. But invariably, it would become a gripe session. Oh, man, you need to be glad you don't have Mr. Smith as one of your deacons. That man is just impossible. And they would go on and on and on and on and on. And you know what? That is a sin. That's wrong. That is wrong. And so for me to have a frustration with one of you and go to somebody else and talk about you and the trouble I'm having with you to some other person is a sin against you, and that's wrong. Just like it's wrong for you to have a problem with me or difficulty with me and then go talk to somebody else about it instead of coming to me. That's wrong. You're sinning against me, and, and, and we need to not do that. We need to covenant that we will never speak ill about a person that is giving us opposition to other people. We go to the Lord. Now, maybe we go to a beloved counselor that will confront us and help us to find ways, but not just the one that will give us a, 
a conciliatory ear. Boy, you're right. They really are trouble. I don't know how you put up with that person. You are just a saint. I tell you what. If I had that person, I'd probably have already pulled out a gun and shot them. We don't need that. All that does is feed our sin nature. So don't gossip about your relationships. Number 10. Protect those closest to you from negative outside influences. Wow, what a sentence. Protect those closest to you from negative outside influences. Guys, if you're having trouble at work with a troublemaker, an opponent, don't go home every evening telling one more story about that person to your wife. Don't go home and say one more thing about how terrible it was at work today because of so-and-so. Here's why. Now listen, this is very important. What we tend to do when we talk about these kinds of things with those closest to us is we tend to only focus on the bad things that happened in that relationship or in our day. And so they don't get a picture of the whole day that the other seven hours and 45 minutes were awesome, but that 15 minutes with Bill was like hell on earth, okay? And so all she hears is the bad part. And so her image of your job is that it is terrible, it is horrible, and then she becomes frustrated and she becomes upset. And so don't do that, okay? Protect them. This is especially true, I just got to be honest, maybe this comes out of my own heart, because it's especially true with, with those of us that work in the church. I have never been in a church as wonderful as this church is, this family. You guys love me so, and I love you so much. But there are things I have to deal with, of course. And if all I did was go home and tell Sharon everybody about all the problems I'd had that day, for long she'd be saying, I think it's time for us to move. When really 99% of every day of my life is a joy. And so I, tr I protect Sharon and my boys, my father and mother-in-law, from the negative things so that they can have a good positive attitude about what's going on. Lastly, number 11, differentiate between criticism of issues and criticism of you personally. Differentiate between criticisms of you, or excuse me, criticisms of issues and criticism of you personally. This is another version of something I said a couple of years ago to you. Don't take personally things that aren't personal. A lot of times people's criticisms are about something a decision that we've made or something that we have done is not a criticism of you personally and it is so easy for us to take these things personally. Jesus didn't do that. You notice, Jesus doesn't defend himself. He defends the decision that he is making or the thing that he is doing, but not himself. Jesus understood that issue. Now those 11 things will help you as you deal with people who are giving you difficulty. And if you'd like more conversation on that, send me a text, drop me an email, leave me a voicemail and say, hey, uh, I have some questions about that. Could we get together and talk over a cup of coffee or just call me on the phone? I just have a question for you. I'd love to talk to you about that some more. But i got to do one more thing, and this sermon is just a scooch long. I've got five more minutes, and we'll be done. Jesus always provides an example for how we can live our lives. But there's one other element that we have to remember before we go, and that is that not only should this draw our attention to Jesus' example, it also should draw our attention to Jesus himself. Sometimes we are, no, let me say it this way. Sometimes we don't feel like we are in the role of being Jesus or representing Jesus in that particular situation. Sometimes we feel like that man with the withered hand. Or we feel like those disciples who are being lambasted by the Pharisees of the world. And so rather than looking at Jesus' example, we need to look to Jesus. 
Because you see, the one thing Jesus does for us, he reminds us that no matter how anybody else may feel about you, no matter how anybody else may treat you, he loves you for who you are. Is he brokenhearted over a bad decision? Of course he is, but he still loves us. And we can cry out to him and say, Father, I need you to vindicate me. Jesus, I need you to be by my side. I need you to help me and remind me that my focus should always be on you. Not on that person, not on that situation, not on that job, not on that school, not on that whatever it may be. I need to focus my attention on you and on you alone. And the same Jesus that defended his disciples, the same Jesus that healed that man with the, widow, with, the, with the withered hand is the Jesus that will come to you and say, I love you. I know you're doing the right thing in this situation. You just listen to me. So beloved, as we come to the end of this, this is not really about Sabbath. This is not about Sunday worship. This is not about even Pharisees and Sadducees that maybe are in the church or in other Christian circles you're in. This is about who is Jesus. And in verse 8 of chapter of chapter 12, Jesus makes a statement. He says, therefore the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And I want you to take that sentence, I want you to expand it out to every area of your life. Jesus is Lord of your job. Jesus is Lord of of your school. Jesus is Lord of your church. Jesus is Lord of your Bible study group. Jesus is Lord of all of these things, which means he owns them, he is in charge of them, and you are a steward for him. So my prayer is that as you go out this week and you deal with difficult people, and this is the person that works in the very next cubicle to you, or this is the person that's in the very next seat to you at school, remind yourself Jesus is Lord of this relationship. Jesus is Lord of this teacher and this classroom. And then look to him and to his example and live for him. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this story, actually these two stories in the life of Jesus. Rather than spending our time dealing with the theology and the doctrine of his answers to these Pharisees, I'm so glad that you led me and I believe led us to think about the way that Jesus responded. Because every one of us have people in our lives that are difficult to deal with. Every one of us have situations in our lives that are, that are tough. And I pray that we would be able to go to work tomorrow morning, to go to school on Tuesday morning and know that you Jesus, our Lord, of every one of those relationships. That you put us specifically in those relationships with a job for us to do. And as we take these 11 things, as we go over them in our minds, maybe we even take them with us to work or to school or wherever. And then as we remember that beyond just following Jesus' example, we're called to follow him and to look to him as our Lord. I pray that we will find peace and courage and love and joy in whatever situation we find ourselves in. For the sake of your kingdom, Father, and the glory of your name, Jesus,